This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. the show. All right. Hi there. This is uh, Dylan Lloyden, uh, and I'm here with uh, Justin Harper, uh, and um, very pleased to have him uh, today. We're going to talk about uh, his experience both as a paramedic and as a parent, uh, and we're going to talk today about pediatric type 1 diabetes and the presentation specifically of DKA. So, Justin... Tell me about yourself and kind of tell me about your experience with uh, DKA. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dylan, for having me. And uh, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about uh, type 1 diabetes and, and specifically, you know, new onset type 1 diabetes. So I have a, I have a seven-year-old son right now who, who is type 1. He was diagnosed two years ago when he was five. And and really the, the thing for me, being a healthcare provider, being a paramedic for the last 20-some-odd years... Uh, I'm also married to a pediatric nurse. My my wife and I, we saw some changes in our son that we didn't recognize, and and I think that the the time period in there and, and these changes that were slow to develop, it was really educational for us in the long run because we didn't think we were looking at type one diabetes. Uh, you know the 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 reality of the situation for us, what we were watching was the slow attack from his autoimmune system on the beta cells, the insulin-producing cells of the body. And, and what we had always learned were that the typical or characteristic and obvious signs and symptoms of nuance at type 1 diabetes is DKA, so polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, uh, dehydration, uh, Kuzmal respirations, you know, that, those were the things that I understood as new onset type 1 diabetes. And watching my son for four months, five months, uh, go through this process where his body uh, was slowly impeding his ability to, uh, to deliver insulin to the cells, but also to remove that excess blood glucose and, and leaving him in a situation where his, his body was trying other mechanisms to get rid of that excess sugar. And, and so abdominal pain was something that I had no idea would be a sign and symptom of new onset type 1 diabetes. Um, the, the dehydration piece where you, know, you look at a five-year-old who is nauseous, a little bit of abdominal pain, and, and dehydrated, I can think of 15 differentials that don't involve type 1 diabetes. And so that learning process for us and going through that before... Uh, we recognized those characteristic and obvious signs. It wasn't until my own son was in DK that we recognized, oh, I wonder if he's a diabetic. And by that point, it was really, it was, we should have picked it up earlier in my estimation. And I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for healthcare providers across the board to in, improve their knowledge on this subject. Had he had visits to ERs or visits to his doctor where where that was sort of an opportunity to identify it that was that was missed? Absolutely. He had been in uh, three months prior to diagnosis with an upper respiratory infection. And, you know, the, the signs and symptoms that we saw, so 
as his blood glucose levels rose, his body, you know, would respond by the, you know, increased osmotic diuresis and really pulling off that sugar, pulling off. So we had electrolyte disturbances, we had dehydration. And the way that we explained that to our pediatrician was to say, yeah, he just seems like he's got this chronic bug. And, and the problem was that he would return to normal. He, he would either produce enough insulin because it's such a slow process. He would either produce enough insulin that he would return to baseline and he would drink enough water to flush all that sugar out of his system. And, uh, and so it was really, really confusing, really confounding. And, and so we, when we were in with the upper respiratory infection, yes, if it were uh, customary for them to test one drop, at, at the pediatrician's office, they would have caught it at that point with that history. Did he have weight loss? He, he did, and that you know that's another thing. You look at a five-year-old, and and I see pictures of him now at diagnosis, and uh, and it was significant. You see his collarbones, and he just he looks terrible in retrospect. But living with it, of course, uh, we didn't necessarily notice it. Um, and at the time that we were in at the pediatrician's office, no, we did not see we did not see weight loss. When he finally was diagnosed and he was actually in DKA, was there a specific trigger that was identified? There was. You know, it was the stereotypical. He's up in the middle of the night peeing. He's drinking a ton of water. Um, and then mom took him out to breakfast because he was having mood swings. And I think the, the mood swings are another thing that really, uh, I think, can be clinical markers for people understanding this disease process in the early onset. The, the mood swings, especially in the pediatric population, uh, and, and we hear this across the board when we talk to other parents of, uh, of kids that are diagnosed, that the, the, the mood swings and the mood changes where they just go from uh, you know, happy to sad and instantly and uh, very frustrated. Uh, the, those are things that we saw. And, and mom took him to breakfast over at Snooze and he ate two plates of pineapple pancakes. And she called me and sent me a picture. And I, I remember the term she used was insatiable. And, uh, and everything kind of came together for me at that point. And, and what is that characteristic and obvious again? And, and so I think for, for me, you know, I, so I do a, a lecture for pre-hospital providers. And what I'm really trying to impress upon people is that these differentiating signs and symptoms of early onset, new, new onset type one diabetes. And, and so what are we gonna see in these early phases? Uh, we're gonna see that rise and fall of that blood sugar, that increased osmotic diuresis. So you're gonna see electrolyte disturbances. You're gonna see dehydration. You know, abdominal pain is, is just a thing uh, with, uh, with, with, uh, with type one diabetics. It's something that is it's recurrent. Um, and we've seen it even after his diagnosis, where whenever his blood glucose gets a little high, it's abdominal pain, cramping. Uh, he's uncomfortable and, and, and unhappy. I, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, too, and I don't think I've ever had a real explanation for the belly pain. Have you gotten a, a better sense of what the mechanism of that pain is? You, you know, there's... There are some uh, articles that, that I've seen that refer back to cytokines. So when we get more into decay and we're burning fat and we get deep into, you know, um, ketosis. Yeah, ketosis and uh, and specifically burning, uh, you know, of fat. The, there's the release of cytokines uh, in that area and and you know hitting the the abdominal wall. Excuse me, the stomach lining and causing cramping, causing nausea, and causing vomiting. 
Um, so there's some science there, but for the most part, that, you know, there, there's not a lot of links to that abdominal pain and cramping in, in just hyperglycemia. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, if, if you're familiar with signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia, then you'd be a lot better off understanding new onset type 1 and, and understanding the, the slow process, slowly degrading those cells and, and seeing uh, what hyperglycemia looks like and then sort of leveling off. So what, what does that look like? You're, you're somewhere between 300 or 350. Your body's going to respond by increasing uh, urination, increasing diuresis. And and uh, and the physio- physiological process there um, will leave you dehydrated, will leave you feeling weak and sick, and you know those are the people as healthcare providers we need to look out for. And I think you're you know you're in a position as an emergency physician where I think you get to see these patients in more of the characteristic and obvious uh, situation where they are in in DKA, and I I feel like that is a little bit more recognizable. So. Uh, whether we're talking about adults, whether we're talking about pediatrics, I think recognizing the signs and symptoms of new onset is really sort of changing our thought process a little bit is where I'm really focused. How, how I'm, I'm just fascinated in how, you know, there's the experience of being on, as we say, like the other side of healthcare, you know, as a parent or as a, an actually a, a patient. Um, how has this experience changed your practice as a paramedic? You know, I think one of the the biggest things that that I've pushed for is um, a little bit of patience and understanding. I I think when I was a paramedic and I functioned on the street, uh, if I were called to a hypoglycemic patient, um, you know, my my ultimate goal is to get in and out as quickly as possible and to, you know, get that patient awake, get them taken care of, uh, get them taken care of. But really... I want to get that refusal signed and I want to get on to whatever I was eating or whatever I was doing, whatever crossword puzzle I was working on. Um, and, and I want to get back to, you know, that was kind of my thought process as a paramedic. And, um, you know, my my perspective now in seeing my, my son go from 60, uh, blood, gluco- blood glucose is 60 to 350 in a matter of a couple hours, um, you know, it, it changes my understanding of this disease process and my thought process and how delicate it is and how really difficult it is to manage whether you're managing it for yourself whether you're managing for uh, a family member so as a responding paramedic i think that i take those things into account and saying hey let's figure out what happened here and 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 i think that a great change that i've seen in the denver metro is moving away from d50 i know there's a lot of paramedics who like to throw you know a brick at my head for for saying that but uh, because it's a, an inconvenience for them. Uh, but really, I think titrating to effect and treating what you're seeing is very, very important. And, and if you were to respond to my son who's unconscious and responsive and just give him a, a dose uh, of medication that is D50 to wake him up, and it, and it brings him to 350, you've complicated the situation greatly. Uh, and and so that's just very easy to do. And the other thing I would do as a, as a first responder, as a paramedic, uh, you know, I would give the whole amp of D50, regardless if they were waking up or not. And then I would follow that with, I would tell my partner, uh, Jordan, to go and make a sandwich. Go and make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich heavy on the jelly. And I would explain to the patient that if you don't eat this, I'm going to have to come back. You're going to go low again, and I don't want to do that. So understanding now that 
problem solving and helping uh, the patient figure out how did we get here? Have you had a change in medication? Have you been sick lately? And and uh, in problem solving those things, I, I think uh, we can all as healthcare providers we can all learn from that. Sounds like a tremendous uh, lesson in empathy and and, and thinking about the, how hard it is to be the patient who's sick like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there things that you you mentioned a few things just now? dosing a D50 or thinking about the, your own behavior and communicating the situation to patients, but are there things that you, as you're teaching your new paramedics, your new students, what are you teaching them differently about recognition? You know, I, I think that the one of the things that, so I, I've taken over the endocrinology lecture for the, the paramedic school, and I think one of the things that is really uh, important to me is getting away from... Uh, these blanket ideas of how to treat uh, people who are in DK or people who are hypoglycemic or new onset or people who have been diabetic for a long time. And, and so having a better understanding of the disease process is really paramount here. And, and helping people, because you know what? It is fairly complicated, and it, it, no matter what level of healthcare you're at, the endocrine the endocrine system is it is complicated, and and when you look at a disease process, um, and you look at complications such as DK, so you're looking at hematology, you're looking at the bicarbonate buffer system, you're looking at a very complex issue when you're looking at DK, and and I can tell you, and Jordan can probably attest to this, that when you go through paramedic school, there's a guy standing up there teaching your class saying, if you find somebody in DKA, just give them a ton of fluid. Just throw a bunch of, they're going to be fluid depleted, throw a bunch of fluid at them. And I guarantee you there are people out there, especially paramedics listening, nodding their heads saying, yes, um, that, that is what I learned in, in, in paramedic school. And you know as a physician, that's not correct. We don't want to throw fluid at these people. It would be, Particularly children. Particularly children. Yeah. And, and the idea that uh, these these individuals need to be slowly rehydrated. They need to be. They need to deal. We need to deal with the electrolyte imbalance, uh, and 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 slowly um, work towards a solution that involves the ICU, that involves a long process and a long stay. And and that's what I teach to is is a better understanding physiologically of this process, and not just saying blanket statements that this is how we treat individuals and, and this is how we do it. I think of my own practice in the ER over the years, and I, I know that I've missed DKA. I've certainly had a delayed diagnosis of DKA a handful of times. I've been surprised by it. I'm sure I've had bounce backs. I probably don't even know about my own all of my own bounce backs. But um, the diagnosis is so tantalizing because, on the one hand, it's the easiest diagnosis in the world, right? It's just check of blood sugar. That's all you have to do. But the, to make the diagnosis, treatment is complicated, but the, but even initial phase of treatment need not be too complicated, but the, you have to think of it. I mean, that's the whole obstacle. The, the challenge is not making the diagnosis. It's, it's thinking of it in the first place. Yeah, ab absolutely. And this is, you know, it, it is one of these things that when we're talking about this subject, I, you know, I try to add it as a fifth vital sign. And I try to, because, you know, I, I work for Denver Paramedics. And one of the things that I was taught very early on in my career as a Denver paramedic is to use your brain, use your assessment skills, and don't worry so much about the tools around you. And, and you know, you use your history, you use your physical exam, and, and that's how you make your decisions. And, and this is one of these things that 
I'm, I'm going to put you in front of a five-year-old patient who is weak and dehydrated with abdominal pain, you are going to miss the diagnosis. And, and so many clinics, so many clinics miss it. And, and in, in, you know, this is the, the numbers for misdiagnosis are somewhere around 30 to 47 percent. And the number of new onset type 1 diabetics that go into DK is somewhere around 40 to 60 percent. And, and so missing the diagnosis here, and especially in the pediatric population, is so detrimental. And, and the, you know, you, you look at the numbers nationally, you're looking at about 280 kids that, that end up dying from this annual. And it, it necessarily, when you look at the pediatric population, it's cerebral edema. And, and, you know, we could say, well, I guess 280, maybe that's not a huge number, but it's so easily avoidable. And, and when, we, when you dive into those numbers the, of the, the, the pediatric deaths, um, most of them were misdiagnosis. Most of these kids are sent home, abdominal pain, flu-like symptoms. And, and so the, you know, the things as a paramedic specifically, as a healthcare provider that I think that could be helpful for people to understand understand thrush and, and so thrush in in uh, in the pediatric population would be uh, you know fairly uncommon uh, but if you add in hyperglycemia you create an environment in the throat and the mouth uh, where you can have thrush bacterial infection that can cause uh, this sort of white coating and and so do do most paramedics learn about thrush no uh, would I look at a pediatric patient at a clinic and see white covering the back of their throat and think strep as the clinic physician did? Absolutely. And, and so as a paramedic, I'm going to continue that process to the emergency department, transport that child, whether we're talking about weakness, dehydration, white stuff on the back of their throat, and I'm not going to test one drop. I'm going to you know, go down the wrong path and set you up in the emergency department for a misdiagnosis. Yeah, we call that uh, we call that anchoring. Yes. <laughs> yeah. When when somebody you anchor on a specific diagnosis that seems the most obvious or most convenient, frankly, and and we all do it in medicine. It's, I mean, I, I like the concept of the fifth, sixth, or however many vital signs we're up to. Can we replace pain with D stick because pain is bullshit? <laughs> but the, but the. Yeah, you know, I think that's right because this is just a simply an, an issue of of thinking of it. It's not a matter of uh, it's not. You don't have to be a genius to check a blood sugar, but we forget. To, yet we forget to do it all but, the time. But you have to be a genius to miss type one diabetes, and I think that's what happens. Yeah. And I think this is a lot of times we're overthinking it, and a lot of times instead of just testing one drop, and I and I. You know, as a functioning paramedic, I would walk into the emergency department at Swedish and I would say, here's your 32-year-old male who was uh, alcohol intoxicated, unable to ambulate, and, uh, you know, was overqualified for a detox van. He's on the south end of town. I'm sorry, we had to bring him here. And the nurse would look at me and say, what's his blood glucose? And as a functioning paramedic, I would laugh and say, have a good day, because I would never test that. And, and, uh, and at this point, knowing what I know now, that is absolutely a part of you know, this is a patient with altered mentation. This is something that we should be testing. And and test one drop should be a part of what we do. And and there shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to make a whole lot of clinical decisions uh, and, and a whole lot of clinical excuses to, to test one drop. We should just be doing it, especially in the pediatric population. So let's 
let's let's do a rapid fire uh, unusual presentations of uh, of of DKA. You gave a good one right off the bat, which is thrush, and I love that. That's a pearl that everyone can kind of put in their put in their book, if you will. Um, I almost missed one not too long ago. It was uh, EMS transport for anxiety reaction at the work at the uh, at a construction site. Oh, sure. It was a like twenty uh, one year old uh, laborer, uh, non English speaking, from a uh, from a construction site who was basically transported for anxiety and hyperventilation, and he just looked sick. Was all I can say. And and sure enough, it was a, his presentation of. Uh, of DKA, have you had any other particularly unusual patterns you've seen or heard about? Absolutely, I, I think one of the biggest setups for us in emergency medicine, emergency medical services, is the uh, you know the hyperadrenergic, the cocaine overdose, the meth patient. So you know the the ones that 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 we've. Uh, responded to where they're going door to door with their shirt off and they're flushing they're hot and they're tachycardic and they're not making a ton of sense uh, maybe then they're not ultra combative but they're they're altered for sure uh, that's very easy to categorize very simply as possible cocaine overdose sympathomimetic overdose and we have really hit home this idea of medicating these patients appropriately and treating them so you know take the judgment out and treat them with benzos treat them with ketamine do what you need to do and and uh, and we you know that particular patient presentation as a 26 year old male who's been fighting illness for three weeks and who's a, is a matter of fact in dka that's very scary and and we talk about giving ketamine to that particular patient that that would be a, a very very bad thing you could speak to that but the the pediatric side of that as well um, and, and using ketamine for pediatric sedation, if they have uh, uh, DKA, would be a very, very bad idea with the increased risk for cerebral edema and other things. Yeah, I think ketamine still does not treat DKA no. after all these years. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had a P, I had like a case once of I was totally convinced was a PE that was DKA. I mean, certainly the classic, as just as you kind of mentioned, the the child with the gastro. I think that's missed on a, on a regular on a regular basis. Yes. I mean, that's honestly when I see kids in the ED who are sick with vomiting, I often don't even check a blood sugar, but I'll just get a urine on them, basically sure. just for that reason, just looking for glucose and ketones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and because they, they're dry, and then at least we. You know, if they're not not spilling glucose, I'm confident they're they're not in not in uh, not in DK. Now, what about um, shift? We, we sort of talked about the diagnosis, and that is the biggest obstacle, probably, is just making the decision to make to, to, to get the get the test. But um, tell me what you've learned on your journey with this about treatment and management. I guess first, sort of from an EMS perspective, I I think that. Uh differentiating uh, type 1 and type 2 is a big thing and, and I think that uh, for, for healthcare responders or for healthcare providers to understand the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is it's very very important and, and to, to, to understand that my son will die without insulin uh, it's not an option. It's not, you know, and, and uh, you know, a few of the uh, my paramedic colleagues, maybe I haven't seen them in a few months, and I run into them, and they say, hey, how's your son doing? Is he better? And, and I always find that one to be kind of surprising. 
um, like you know, better. So better. How did he go? Did he go to boot camp and lose 200 pounds, and and he's no longer a diabetic? So no. Uh, yeah, he's better in that we're managing it, and and uh, so he's better than when he was in DKA diagnosis. Yes, um, but I think understanding that particular question, what it says to me is, it, it, do we truly understand the difference between type one and type two, and and how to care for both? And I think, you know, the lesson for understanding nuance of type two diabetes is. That's realistic as well. That's something that I think healthcare providers need to understand. It's the same presentation, and it's hyperglycemia. And uh, you know, you can certainly get into HHNK. Uh, you can or, uh, HHNS, excuse me, is uh, the, the terminology now. You're right. It changes uh, on a quarterly basis. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but understanding that that physiological process between HHNS and um, and understanding. Type one diabetes and the, and the necessity for insulin and the necessity for um, carbohydrates and how the body uh, processes carbohydrates and, and wants to break those down into simple sugars and you know I think physiologically understanding those uh, ideas and concepts are that's a really really uh, important piece and then treatment wise for uh, my son. You know, I believe that you're going to see over the next five to ten years a decrease in pre-hospital calls to type 1 diabetics. The technology that's out there, these, you're going to see patients with uh, continuous glucose monitors. My son wears a continuous glucose monitor. Uh, it just looks like a little tab that in, in his uh, age and weight range, he doesn't have much adipose tissue, so it sits on the back of his arm. Um, and, and, and it reads his blood glucose every five minutes. It's inserted just below the skin. There's a, a small wire, essentially, that kind of sits down there like a fiber optic and, and helps read uh, those blood glucose levels in the interstitial fluid, and it's fairly accurate. You know, the FDA just recently approved it for diagnoses, or excuse me, for um, for, um, uh, for monitoring and for um, dosing in, instead of a blood glucose fingerprint. Uh, so there are a lot of people use, using the um, the CGM to, to dose off of. So the technology is completely infrared or, or optic. It's not n- completely non-invasive. It is. And no, he does have. It does go under the skin. Oh, okay. it does. Yeah. yeah. So it is. A, yeah. It is an insertion point where yeah. he has a needle that goes in. Got it. But it is a very small little feather of a piece of. Yeah. Uh, wire that sits underneath the skin it's not it doesn't bother him at all how often do you have to change it out well so it's nice because they recommend every seven days but you know if you know how to use the technology you can stretch that out and i think the most we've had out of it is about 22 days so you can as long as you can keep the adhesive from getting pretty nasty you can keep that thing going for for quite a while sounds like me and my contact lenses (laughs) yeah right (laughs) but that's pretty cool yeah i mean you were showing us some tech uh, as we were kind of getting ready, uh, tell us about some, your hack. You have a hack. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it, you know, so I think I think that you're going to see over the next few years less hypoglycemic patients, and you're going to see less of these, you know, 911 calls um, for for low blood glucose, specifically because of these type one diabetics that are wearing CGMs. Now, type two. Uh, you know, insurance-wise, they're not covering it that way. So, so you may not see it on the type two patients, but um, but for type one, I I think you're going to see tighter control, 
better understanding of the disease process and less of these calls. And for my son, uh, you know, what we're doing right now is he is on an insulin pump. And, and for, for those of you who are not familiar with insulin pumps, you know, you're, you're either on insulin injection and you're going to take a long-acting insulin, uh, which is kind of going to provide that background insulin that all of us have, that a normal functioning pancreas would have. You, you know, you just have that lasting in your system from 12 to, for 12 to 24 hours. So you're going to take a long-acting, and then you're going to take a rapid-acting that you're going to bolus for carbohydrates. So I'm going to eat a plate of fries if I'm type 1, and I'm going to give myself, you know, however many um, units of insulin to cover the fries. That's the rapid-acting. And so for your for your long-acting insulin, you're looking at anywhere between 2 to 4 to 6-hour peak effect. And for the, um, for the rapid-acting, it's 15 minutes to an hour for peak effect. And, and so when you have a patient who's on the insulin pump, you're going to take away the long-acting uh, insulin, and you're just going to go load that pump with the rapid-acting. And it's going to give just a little bit of background basal insulin and, and kind of provide that just enough insulin to, to deal with your, uh, your body's uh, regular metabolism and, and regular homeostasis. And the, but the problem there is, is that we have this insulin pump, and we load it, with uh, with the, the the insulin, the rapid acting insulin, and we kind of hope and guess for how much insulin we should be giving him. And what's going on right now is that the insulin and the CGM, or excuse me, the pump and the CGM are not talking to each other. And so that's really what we want to do. And and, and so we've we've. Uh, followed some directions that are given out there on on the web by uh, parents who are of type 1 diabetics who are engineers and they're, they're good with software and so they've they've helped out with the the steps to, to create to make that bridge between the CGM and the insulin pump to to have them talk to each other and why shouldn't they and and so hopefully the FDA gets there and I know that they've they've gotten there in certain visions or versions of this that adults are are using that's not cleared for pediatric use yet um, but hopefully they get there soon because that CGM should absolutely drive what that pump is doing we can edit this out and you don't have to answer this by any means I'm, I'm curious because I like the direction that we're going right now with this talk of sort of talking about the parent experience and sort of the care and care giver perspective but I do feel comfortable speaking to sort of the financial impact on a family yeah. of trying to figure this out. Because yeah. one of the things that that I'm breaks my heart, I mean, you know, we take care of these patients and you take care of these patients as well, is folks with no medical sophistication, no financial resources, who are facing this disease as teenagers or yeah. you know, young adults. It's, it's kind of heartbreaking to see the revolving door that, that, that uh, they come through into our, into our hospitals curious what it's like what what the impact is like for you as a parent sort of financial impact of caring for a child with DK or excuse me with type 1 diabetes yeah uh, so certainly it is the, not hard numbers but I'm just no, curious uh, what the experience is like I can tell you you know being gainfully employed having health insurance and married to a nurse married too, to right? a nurse and yeah. you're a yeah. paramedic yeah. you guys are medically sophisticated and and we we struggle, and and we struggle with so the the insurance piece of this, uh, great coverage, great care. The insulin is incredibly expensive, 
And, and so I will tell you that it is a consideration and a factor when we deal with my son's blood glucose and, and not only the long-term impact of hyperglycemia on his body, but the cost of the insulin. And, and it, is, it is expensive, and we try to manage his care to minimize the impact of that insulin, not only for his long-term health, but also for the cost. And when you add on the insulin pump, a lot of that is covered under insurance, but we have to change it every three days. So the, the equipment that's associated with you know changing that insulin, changing the insulin pump, changing that CGM every couple weeks, and the the cost associated with that. If if we didn't have the insurance and we weren't employed and we didn't have the type of resources that we have, looking across the board, across the spectrum, socioeconomically, people who couldn't afford some of these things, the outcome is catastrophic. The outcome is necessarily going to be DK. And, and if it's something that they're not able to manage in the long term well, uh, the, the cost is to their renal system, the cost is to their peripheral extremities, cardiovascular disease. And, and it, it's a, you know, it seems to me to be cyclical and that it's going to cost it's going to cost you one way or another. So it's unfortunate that you know we're not able to take better care of people because it's going to cost you in the long run. Um, but certainly seeing that from a parent perspective, because we're, you know, one of the things we do with our son is we try to get out into the community and get him around other people with type 1 diabetes um, and, and get him to camps and to see other people. And, and, you know, there are people who look at our CGM and say, oh, we, I really wish we could afford that, much less that, you know, talking about building an artificial pancreas for their, their kid. And, and, you know, that that piece of it is very difficult. It's, it's, it's very difficult to see other families in a similar situation that don't have the resources to manage their, their kids' blood sugar better. Yeah. And, and looking at adults who um, have difficulties managing it, it's the same thing. It's a lot of it is insurance based. If you don't have the money to afford the C jam, you're not going to be able to monitor those monitor those numbers very well, and you're going to end up going high. DK, tell me about your diet and your kid's diet. So, you know, one of the things at intake that was surprising to my wife and I was that, uh, you know, they said they said you can eat whatever you want and just you'll have to give insulin to cover it. And, and I think that was a surprise to both of us because I think we both, we both knew better. But we wanted to believe that, and so we tried that for a little while. And you know, we'd go to the birthday party and we, we would have the uh, hot dogs and the cupcakes and everything, and it was, we were giving lethal doses of insulin and finding that it, it was, yes, it was, he, he would go to 350 yeah. and then he would go down to 60, and it was very scary. And, and so very quickly we realized that that's not the case. You can't eat whatever you want. And so we low carb. We, we are very cautious about what we um, put into our bodies, which makes him be cautious about what he puts into his body. And, uh, and you know, we don't restrict a lot of things. If we do go to a party and there's cupcakes there, he's going to have them. And it's because the rest of the time, the rest of the week, we eat fairly low carb and we manage the we manage what goes into his body, and that that really helps balance uh, his blood glucose over time. May I say his name? Liam. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
what would Liam tell us it's like to be seven and to be a diabetic? So I, I had a unique experience where we're, so we're testing the artificial pancreas and I loaded it with saline and I plugged it into myself and, uh, and it hurt. And when I inserted that needle into my stomach, it, it hurt and I winced and he looked at me and he nodded his head knowingly and said, welcome to my world. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of times where he says, you know, I hate diabetes. And that's kind of a joke in our family where we say, you know, I hate diabetes. And it's, uh, it's something that, that we joke about, but it's, uh, and, you know, we'll scream it, you know. We'll scream it all together, I hate diabetes. Uh, but it's something that I think that it makes him strong and it makes him, you know, a tough kid. And, and he definitely recognizes that he has to face challenges that other kids don't have to face. But he does well in that. And I, and I think that it's cool. This is why it's really cool to have him around other kids and for him to recognize he's not the only one. Because there, there's a lot of them out there. And, uh, and he, he's not the only one dealing with these issues. So the, the camps are great. It's, it's a great resource for him. It's absolutely wonderful. We hate diabetes. <laughs> uh, I want to uh, bring my colleague, uh, Jordan Arada, my EMS coordinator at Swedish, into the conversation. Jordan, I'm just going to give you the mic. Do you have any any questions that you want to raise or bring up from a paramedic perspective? Man, you know, it's first of all, it's just fascinating to hear more of this. I mean, I've known Justin for 10 years, and I've known about the diabetes in your family for as long as it's been going on and, and hearing it now, I mean, it gives me goosebumps and makes me well up with tears hearing about the experience that you have with your family. And it makes me as a paramedic and as a parent wonder like, oh man, what am I missing? What am I missing my own kids? Or how am I missing things when I see them in patients? And I think there are so many opportunities. And like you said, in pediatrics, it's so difficult. And so, I think there's a huge opportunity in paramedic education and EMT education and just general education in the public about what are we seeing, what does it mean, and what are we doing about it. And I was fortunate when I went through paramedic school to have an extraordinarily dedicated primary instructor, Chris Winans, who was probably the biggest patient advocate I've ever met. And he did a very good job of instructing us, and a lot of the stuff that you're saying was stuff that I did get in paramedic school, but it's such an overwhelming, in-depth experience in paramedic school that a lot of that stuff and those, the minutia, I mean, not minutia, but, but just the, the, the finer details of disease process is easy to miss and hard to really absorb until later in your career when you're ready to take on more knowledge. Um, and I think emphasizing the significance of this early on is huge and not letting it be minutia and not letting it be a finer point making sure that people understand that these are kids lives and this is something that we can make a significant impact for these 280 kids every year they don't have to die um, and it's tough too i mean we, we we met at denver health and we deal with a very uh, at-risk population there and across the board, EMS deals with very high-risk patients. Those are the people who call 911, and those are the people who don't have 
all the resources, the tools, the education to to access this. And what do you see as the future? How do we move this into the community and move this into paramedic education so that we're making a bigger impact consistently? Well, you know, I hope to have an impact on that, but I realize the, the limitations of that. So, you know, I, I get out and I talk in the EMS community and I try to, I try to lecture as best that I can. But I, I'll tell you what, what makes me really optimistic on a global scale. So uh, Barbara Davis right now, uh, Barbara Davis Center, if, if you're not familiar, is uh, part of University Hospital. And they, they are the regional diabetes center, type 1 diabetes center. And, and so they do a lot of studies and a lot of, uh, a lot of great work in the community regarding type 1. And one of the things that they're doing right now is they're getting uh, a, a study going, they're getting out to the community, they're, they're providing uh, screening and testing. So the screening and testing for type 1 diabetes is, it's not perfect and it's improving over time. But you're talking about sometimes genetic testing. You're talking about testing for autoimmunity. Uh, and, and so those are sometimes difficult tests. A lot of them are blood draws. Uh, and, and some of it's moving towards finger sticks, which, which makes people more inclined to do it. Uh, so, so those things are improving and changing. But getting uh, testing out there into the world is a big thing. And, and I also think that along with the testing is getting... Uh, knowledge out there. So you'll see in the next uh, year or so from Barbara Davis's big push for public education on this. And and I think it's really easy to look at this and say, oh, well, type 1 diabetes isn't a large problem. There's, there's, uh, there's 1.25 million people in the United States. That's not anywhere near uh, the numbers in type 2 diabetics. But... 0.3%. Yes. Nice. <laughs> so... If, if you as a parent, uh, both of you uh, have kids, and if you as a parent had an opportunity to know your risk factors uh, for yourself, for your kids, uh, for this autoimmune disease process, you would want to know that. And, and so, you know, I think that uh, improving the testing is really paramount, and that's happening, and that's great. And then the second piece of it is getting uh, the education out. And so what they're doing is they're providing public education, and they're also going to clinics, not only inner city clinics, but clinics in the suburbs, clinics all around the Denver metro, and they're giving information and test kits, and they're re, uh, reinvigorating this idea of test one drop and, and, and posting signs and symptoms in the waiting room of new onset type 1 diabetes that, that are not the characteristic and obvious, not DK, but weakness, dehydration, mental status changes, those things that are really, really important as a parent to understand the pediatric uh, side, but also as clinicians to understand, understand the difference between DK and new onset type. So as a ER doc, when, I w when my son, who's uh, 15 now, but um, when he was a, a kid, like a toddler and, and a school-age kid like Liam, Full disclosure, I was totally convinced he had type 1 diabetes. I was totally convinced. Because he he's like a skinny little guy. I mean, I'm skinny, but he was skinny little guy. And he was always hungry. And then he was always like fussy eater. He was always like, would like not eat because he was sick to his stomach. I was just, I remember 
at least 10 times. I was like, all right, how am I going to f- check his blood sugar without, like, poking him and, like, take him to the ER? Because I don't want to do that. I mean, I remember I had, like, genuine anxiety about my son and diabetes over and over and over again. And I think at one point I, like, convinced my wife that, like, I, I was working one day and he was puking. And, and, and I was like, well, just take him to the pediatrician but just make sure they get a ua on him it's not i, I just it's not i don't want to freak you out it's it's not a uti i just I just make sure they check a ua and i remember like talking her through this pediatrician visit from a distance and just i was i was obsessed with it yeah yeah well let me ask you do you have type one in your family uh, I do not. I have. Um, I have. A, no. The short answer is no. So do yeah. you do you believe then that you would be at less risk yourself and your kids to have type one diabetes? That's a great question. So I'm going to betray my total ignorance as an ER physician. I mean, my general sense of it is that the genetic burden for type one diabetes is very, very, very low. Maybe you're going to tell me I'm wrong. No, I, you're. I, you're, I, that, you're correct. Right. I mean, my. I, for example, um, you know, I, obviously type 2 diabetes strongly, strongly genetic. In my family, uh, there's no diabetes period, really, but uh, my understanding is that it has no impact, really meaningful impact on my, my kids or my own risk of type 1. Is that accurate? Uh, absolutely yeah. accurate. And, you know, that was, you know, we have no family history. Uh, we have no... Uh, traceable history whatsoever to even autoimmune diseases yeah. uh, so this was one of you know this was uh, hands in the air what yeah. what are we talking about how did this happen and um, you know I think it's important you know whether you're a healthcare provider or not to understand that uh, when you're dealing with type 1 it's not something that you did uh, we didn't feed him too many cupcakes. We didn't give him too much orange juice. We didn't, you know, we didn't give him too many Capri Suns. We didn't do this to him. And it is an autoimmune disease. And, and I think that's really, uh, that's really something to drive home, even with healthcare providers, uh, that this is something that is completely unavoidable, completely out of, out of the blue. And uh, right now it's completely manageable, um, but, but there is no cure for it as well. And uh, I think when, when we talk about curing the disease and, and moving forward and what do we look to next, uh, we really hang our hats on the technology. You know, you're talking about autoimmune, so I, if I could have given my son my pancreas, I would have done that already. Uh, although my pancreas and my liver maybe have had a, about a 20-year <laughs> battle, so maybe my pancreas wouldn't have been the best, but I would have given battle it to tested. him. Battle tested. Battle tested. That's right. I would have given my, him my pancreas already. But he, he's, he's got the autoimmune system that would destroy anything that's going to be foreign. Uh, and, and so, you know, when we talk about beta cells, uh, uh, implants, things like that, this technology and, and these advances, um, you're really talking about uh, anti-rejection medications. And uh, so you, I hear a lot of people making the choice between anti-rejection and insulin. And so with the technology now, I think right now, given the choice, I'll take insulin. And I'll take the pump and the CGM and the artificial pancreas and we'll go that way rather than not leaving the house. <laughs> so I, 
want to thank uh, Justin Harper from Denver Health uh, Paramedic Division and EMS for speaking with us today. I want to thank uh, my colleague at Swedish Medical Center, uh, Jordan Arada, paramedic also, um, for, for participating. And I want to thank my uh, group, CarePoint uh, Healthcare, which uh, underwrites our work at the Emergency Medical Minute. Uh, come find us at theemergencymedicalminute.com. Uh, and come see me, uh, Dylan Loyton. I'm the Medical Director for Emergency Services at Swedish Medical Center. Come find me in my ER. Thank you very much.